Galatians chapter 2. Hear the word of God as I read the first six verses. Paul writing says, Then after fourteen years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower thereof falls away, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our fathers, we bow in your presence tonight. We do cry out to you, O God, personally, and I trust collectively that you would be pleased to intervene tonight and enable us, Father, to hear your word and to hear it proclaimed in truth. I pray, crying out for the gracious assistance of your spirit, May he come upon people and preacher alike. And Father, we would humbly ask that you would drive home the truth of this passage to all of our hearts. Mold us and make us more into the image of your own beloved Son, in whose blessed name we pray. Amen. We come tonight here and at the beginning of the second chapter of Paul's epistle to the Galatians, he is continuing to defend the gospel as well as his own apostolic credentials. Now in the course of defending his own apostolic commission and the truth of the gospel which he himself preached, he now tells us that after 14 years, he went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, his companion. And one of the things we need to consider here to help us understand what Paul is saying is the chronology which is involved here that we are presented by Paul. Does this 14 years that Paul mentioned refer to the period following his previous visit to Jerusalem. In verse 18 of chapter 1, where we read, Then after three years, he says, I went up to Jerusalem. Where one may suppose that some three years following his conversion on the Damascus Road with respect to his first visit, are we to understand it that way or are we to understand that 14 years later, that is three years plus the 14 years 
for a total of 17 years, he now goes to Jerusalem again. It's not all that clear in the passage. If we are to understand the time sequence, that is the 14 years as following the three years of verse 18 of chapter 1, then it would appear obvious <coughs> that the visit of which Paul speaks here in chapter 2 in verse 1 to be the visit of which Luke addresses more extensively in the 15th chapter of the book of Acts regarding the council of Jerusalem, where Paul and Barnabas enter into a dispute with some Judaizers, which culminates then in the gathering for this council in Jerusalem involving the apostles and the elders in order to adjudicate that particular dispute. And it is at that council that an agreement is reached. <clears throat> Namely, that men are justified by means of faith alone on the basis of Christ and his work alone. And at the close of chapter 15, you'll notice, if you're familiar with that passage or go back and read it, that we find them sending out word from that council to all the churches. In other words, the decisions of that council had repercussions for the entire worldwide church, which we call the church Catholic. And that word Catholic simply means universal. It had implications for the universal church. And so if we're to understand that the 14 years are those following hard on the heels of the three years for a total of 17 years, then it seems rather clear by following that chronology that Paul is referring in this passage of chapter 2 to the council of Jerusalem. Hold your horses. I'm not convinced of that argument. However, however, if we accept the scenario of that particular chronology, then we are faced with another very difficult uh, a very difficult thing that we must dispense with or understand in adhering to that particular sequence of events that transpires. And that particular difficulty is this. Throughout his entire letter to the Galatians, Paul himself never so much as alludes, hints at, that agreement reached by the apostles and the elders at the council of Jerusalem in Acts 15. Paul never mentions it throughout this entire epistle. You see, it would have been relatively easy <coughs> for the apostle then to dismiss and dispense with the, these claims being, by, being made by the Judaizers on the occasion of this letter of his by appealing to an earlier decision that had been reached at a previous council, the Council of Jerusalem, of which we read in Acts chapter 15. He would have been able to refute them immediately then with a simple appeal to the decision of the apostles and the elders at that particular council. But throughout this entire epistle of Galatians, we find no mention, 
no reference at all of that dogmatic decree that comes to us from the council of Jerusalem. Therefore, and though I stand to be corrected on this, I think this chronology here is best understood as Paul referring to 14 years following his conversion. And if we understand Paul to be speaking of the 14 years following his conversion, then he is dealing with the situation here precisely as Luke describes it in the book of Acts, the 15th chapter. Because that would mean that Paul first went up to Jerusalem three years after he was converted, as we read near the end of Acts chapter 2. And then as we find Paul in Acts chapter 11, he is sent with Barnabas by the church at Antioch with an offering for the brethren in Jerusalem, Acts 12, 25, which is his second visit to Jerusalem following his conversion. And so it would seem more consistent, I think, with the timeline, although there are good arguments on both sides of the issue, and I have not consulted my brethren, the other pastors, which view they hold. Uh, but it appears, I think, to be more consistent that Paul is referring in verse 1 here of chapter 2 to this second visit of Jerusalem, which is recorded for us in the 11th chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles. Because Paul is arguing in this epistle very adamantly and independently of the apostles in Jerusalem. And I cannot imagine him not making mention of every visit he had made to Jerusalem up to that particular point in time. And since there is no mention in the whole epistle of Galatians of the council of Jerusalem from Acts 15, then it seems that this second visit to which Paul makes reference in chapter 2 and verse 1 must have taken place before the council of Jerusalem occurred. Otherwise, Paul would have said, I think you Judaizers are not even in agreement with the apostles in Jerusalem and the ties with them of which you're presently boasting. Because they stood against your position, you Judaizers, at the council of Jerusalem. Thus, this is, I submit, how I think, and I stand to be corrected. One labors at this, but one is, it's difficult to be confident uh, with the chronology of that. But this is how I think we ought to understand Paul's words in verse 1 of chapter 2. Then after 14 years... I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas. Now, before we delve even any further here into Paul's detailed defense of his apostolic gospel and credentials, perhaps it's appropriate for us to consider the question of Paul's activity, and I'll do this as briefly as possible, during these 14 years to which he makes reference. In other words, what was Paul doing all of this time following his conversion? Well, we're told in chapter 1 and verse 17 that he spent about three years in Arabia. 
And we're, we, some have suggested that it was during this period that he had entered into a quiet retreat and study. But references in Acts chapter 9 and 2 Corinthians 11 informs us that he was preaching at least part of the time during this period and that he returned from there to Tarshish. But other than that, trying to piece together the chronology, which is not easy, it seems likely from the information that I have at my disposal that he was for about 10 to 12 years removed from the scene of biblical history after his conversion. The record of his Christian life for this period is nowhere to be found. And one would be disposed to think that following such a dramatic conversion, Paul would have been held up before all the churches as a glorious example of a persecutor turned preacher, going here and there, giving his testimony, making his rounds to all the churches. I hope I have not left you, I have, you have not abandoned me after that very long, lengthy, boring discussion about chronology. But dear people, I address it because it's in the text. It's in the text. And when you have it in the text, you have to wrestle with it regardless of how indisposed you may be to address it. You have to wrestle with it. I think far from what we often see today, when a notorious sinner is converted, God is pleased to remove Paul from the scene of biblical history. Now, why is that? And I think we ought to be careful how we assess the reason for that or the fact of that. But at the same time, I think there is an indirect inference to be drawn from this concerning God's dealings with his people. You may recall you may recall from the book of Exodus and the editorial comment of Luke that we find in Acts chapter 7 verses 29 through 30 that for some 40 years Moses himself was buried away as it were in the wilderness in Midian. Forty years being prepared by God, forming and fashioning his character for the work to which God would direct him. Forty years of waiting, forty years of preparation secluded from, pub, from the public eye of God's people. And I would suggest that what we see here in the case of the Apostle Paul is a feature or a theme that we find often repeated throughout the work of God uh, in the scriptures. And it is this, that though the work of God is urgent, and while the work of the gospel is critically urgent, at all seasons, at all times, God is never in a hurry in what he is accomplishing in his purposes in the world. He is never in a hurry. Yes, the need was surely pressing and compelling, no doubt about it. Humanly speaking, we can only imagine people asking, what happened to Saul of Tarsus, who was so gloriously converted on the road to Damascus? He's nowhere to be seen among us these days. We need him here. 
We need him now. What a tremendous asset he would be to the work of God's kingdom. What a wonderful, glorious testimony he has. But God is pleased to hide him away for a time from the public scene of the church. And he was being prepared by God for service to God. And he learned, among other things, uh, during that time spent in waiting, that it was not time wasted with respect to the purposes of God. You see, Paul had a work to do in Paul before Paul, before God was to do his work by Paul. He had a work first to do in Paul before Paul could do the work that God had called him to do. Now, I think we find it difficult in our day, in our culture, to embrace this. We have been programmed to think that everything needful is needed right now. <laughs> That's how we've been programmed to think. We view waiting and, and uh, inactivity as a waste of precious time. Is that not the way that we often think today? We view waiting and preparation as altogether unnecessary. And in a day of short attention spans, 15-second ads, and the coveting of instant gratification for this or for that, even with respect to spiritual needs, it is the way of today. And even in the life of the church, we try to play God the Holy Spirit and insist that if this or that isn't addressed now, then it will be too late to be addressed later. Isn't that the way we think as the people of God? The very thought of waiting in trust and reliance upon God and being still and reflective is frowned upon many in the church today. No, we must always be on the move. But time spent in waiting on God is not time wasted. And that's a truth we need to learn from the chronology of Paul in this passage that we're looking at tonight. And there are times when the Lord must set us aside in order to prepare us for useful service in his kingdom and to teach us that preparation is everything. It is everything. We need to cultivate a willingness to be still in the presence of God, to wait on him to fulfill his purposes. Indeed, uh, we need to learn that. Uh, for what does the scripture say? The 27th Psalm, verse 14. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage. And he shall strengthen your heart, says the psalmist. Wait, I say, he says, on the Lord. That's Psalm 27, verse 14. God's willingness to spend time in preparing his people is a truth that we need to lay to heart, you and I, especially when we don't see him conforming to creature-confident timetables. We think we know better than God. God knows far better more than us, and we need to understand that. God is never in a hurry, but he is always on time when it comes to advancing his purposes 
in the world. Now, to be sure, the urgency is great and the need is desperate. No doubt, as surely as it was in Paul's day of being willing to pause in our lives, I think it's necessary for God to work in us and in others as well. Not just us, but in others, our fellow believers whom we labor with side by side so that he might make us even more useful for his work by us and through us. Now I want to attempt a couple of things as I try to look at this passage further. At least one, one more thing and perhaps another, but maybe later on. I want for us to consider Paul's Overall argument here as briefly as possible and then maybe backtrack a bit later and look with you at some of the great issues that are broached or raised here in the first 10 verses of Galatians 2. But I think my brother, <laughs> I, I, you know, I had this friend by the name of uh, Lamar Roberts way back years ago. And whenever I was doubting myself as his pastor, he would say, Brother David, I have full confidence in you. Well, I have full confidence in Brother Wagner that he, <laughs> he will take care of that. But bear in mind Paul's great theme throughout these verses. He is seeking to establish his independence from the apostles in Jerusalem, which might seem strange on the one hand, but it was needed in this particular situation. He has had at best no substantial contact with them. He makes it abundantly clear throughout his argument in this epistle. He did not receive his ministry, he says, by way of apostolic succession from their hands. The gospel he preached, he insists, was not transmitted to him from them. He makes that clear. He had been granted it by way of direct revelation from God as he testifies in verses 11 through 12 of chapter 1. <clears throat> Notice the sequence of Paul's argument and the momentum that's building here as he develops it. You notice, first of all, he only visits Jerusalem some 14 years following his conversion. He only makes two visits to Jerusalem within the span of 14 years. In other words, this informs us, you and I, that his contact with the apostles there has been very limited. Secondly, he tells us in verse 2 that it was due to a revelation that he made this visit to which he refers at all. He went up by way of revelation. He didn't go to Jerusalem because he had received from them a direct invitation from the apostles. But it was rather God's revelation that sent him there. God had revealed to Paul that he should go to Jerusalem. Then thirdly, he informs us in verse 3. That not even Titus, who was with me, he says, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. You recall that the contention of these particular Judaizers was that Christ was not sufficient. But rather, in addition to Christ, one must follow the prescriptions of the Mosaic law. 
You need to be circumcised. And Paul's point is this, that even Titus, a Greek, a Gentile, he says, who accompanied me to Jerusalem, the apostles there imposed no such requirement upon him. And moreover, we'll learn later, verses 7 and 8 and And uh, I'll let my brother deal with that. But Paul says on that occasion that the apostles uh, in Jerusalem both saw and recognized that God had obviously called Paul and laid, uh, uh, had fitted him to be an apostle. And then in the fifth place, and you see this really down in verse 9, the apostles of Jerusalem extended to Paul the right hand of fellowship. So these Judaizers had been insisting that Paul was an inferior apostle to the rest of the apostles. And Paul makes it clear that the apostles in Jerusalem viewed him as on equal footing with themselves. Now I trust you see what Paul is doing here with respect to these Judaizers in defense of his apostolic credentials. He is exposing their insinuations against his ministry and his gospel. And he's holding up all of their lies to the light of the truth that they may be seen for what they are. He's taking the light of truth and holding up their lives, their lies before it so that they can be seen for what they are. And the apostle is simply giving his readers the facts in order to set the record straight with respect to the charges that the Judaizers were making against him personally. And Paul's methodology here in doing this is an example, I think, to all Christian believers. He doesn't mind having his own life and his ministry exposed to the light. He does not shudder from that. He has no fear of that because he is living in the light of the truth. And people could make their own investigations into these facts. And isn't that something that the Bible encourages us all to do? To live our lives in the light of the truth. You see, for the Christian, truth is never his enemy. Truth is never the enemy of a Christian. Never. Remember Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 2. But we have renounced, he says, the hidden things of shame. Not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully. But by manifestation, he says, of the truth. Open disclosure of the truth. Commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. That's the way Paul argues With respect to himself. And so Paul is simply saying that Christians live their lives in the light. We don't live our lives in fear, hiding in this or that corner away from people. We don't lurk in theological or moral dark alleys, as it were. Our lives are an open book. We are to walk, Paul says, Ephesians 5 and verse 8, as children of light. And this is because we are children of him who is the light. And so Paul is living here in the light. 
And you see, this is what Paul is doing in this very epistle. To show the Judaizers, yes, but even more importantly, to demonstrate to these Galatian believers that by living in the light, he can be seen by them as a man of unimpeachable integrity by holding his life up to the light of truth. Well then, having considered the first verses of chapter 2 in terms of that overview uh, and looking at the thrust of Paul's argument there, I want us to back up for just a moment and look more carefully at what Paul is saying throughout these verses. Because so much is squeezed into his argument here in the first six verses of chapter 2. Looking more carefully, notice first of all that Paul tells us again that he went up to Jerusalem because it was revealed to him to do so. Then after 14 years, he says, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and Titus accompanies him. Now we notice that this visit to Jerusalem was not precipitated again by an invitation from the apostles, nor summoned by the apostles. No, he goes up to Jerusalem because God directs him to do so. So it is God who personally, directly, and immediately spoke to Paul and told him to go to Jerusalem. Now this is an issue with which Christians need to wrestle today. God gave Paul a revelation to go to Jerusalem. And therefore we ask, should a Christian expect God to deal with us in the same way today as he dealt with Paul here? Should we be looking for revelations from God by which God says, you're to go here and you're to do such and such? In such and such a place. Now there are Christians in our day who would say, yes, that's how God leads his people. So then are we to expect revelations like Paul? Are we to be listening for voices? Or searching the skies for signs? Maybe looking for the moon to play leapfrog with the sun? Or something like that? Some sign? Should we be looking for some handwriting on the wall as God performed for King Belshazzar in Daniel chapter 5? How does God guide his people today? Dear people, this is very important. It is an issue today that needs to be addressed. How does God guide his people? Well, God guides us, and I want to try and show you this. God guides us today only by his word. In terms of precept and principle. God guides us by his word today only by means of precept and principle. Now attend carefully to the reading of these verses. And this is from Hebrews chapter 1. God who at various times and in various ways, that is by means of visions, by means of theophanies, through revelations, by voices, by dreams, spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. But by way of contrast, verse 2 there, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. In the past, God was pleased to speak by his prophets 
in different ways and at different times. That's obvious. And then in what was probably the last epistle that Paul wrote before the end of his days in this world, his second epistle to Timothy, he writes these words to Timothy in chapter 3, All scripture is given by inspiration of God, is theonoustos, is God-breathed, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete Thoroughly equipped for every good work. So what are those passages teaching us? Well, they're teaching us that as we come to the climatic point of God's revelation in Jesus Christ, which he has made in his inscripturated word, we are to expect him then to feed us, direct us, lead us, guide us, norm us, form us, by means of his holy and infallible word. From the precepts and the principles that he has preserved for us in the books of holy scripture. The Bible, God's word, is, in spite of other claims, a very sufficient guide. Now perhaps having said that, a number of people here may be asking, well what about providence, David? What about the providential occurrences? I mean, after all, doesn't God use providences uh, to guide and direct us? What are we to make of providence in this respect? Well, let's consider some biblical illustrations. Here's the prophet Jonah. We all know the story of Jonah. At least I hope we do. <laughs> He's on his way to Joppa. And he arrives in Joppa, and lo and behold, he finds a ship that's waiting for him to uh, take on a voyage to Tarshish, the very place to which he wanted to go. That was where he wanted to go. What a providence, you may think. What a providence. And yet, it cannot be gainsaid that God does guide sometimes by providence. But was that really where Jonah was supposed to go? <laughs> he had received a command from God to go elsewhere. <laughs> so it was you could discount the providence of the available ship. Let's be certain in our minds what we understand the guidance of providence to mean. And there's another illustration, I think, that speaks to the issue of the guidance of providence as we find it in Acts chapter 16. I trust you remember how we see this through the eyes of Luke who records this. Paul and his companions, it says that they were traveling through Phrygia and the region of Galatia. And they were forbidden, forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. Acts, Acts 16 and verse 6. In some way, by some means, the Holy Spirit prevented them from preaching the gospel in Asia Minor. Well, we are told that then they came to Messiah. And intending to go to uh, Bithynia, and it says there in verse 7 of Acts 16, that the Spirit did not per permit them to pursue that particular course. Now, we're not given the details in precise terms of how the Holy Spirit did that. But the Holy Spirit, by some means, 
prevented them and held them back from their intended course. Paul attempted one plan. It didn't work. He tried another plan. It didn't work. Each way Paul turned, God was effectively shutting the door. And then Luke informs us that during the night, Paul is given this vision. And in that vision, he is told, A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. You think, well, surely that's the providence of God at work. So Paul had this vision. And after he had the vision, what did he and his companions do? And if you don't read the book of Acts carefully, you'll miss the point. Paul had this vision. What did he do? Did they simply rise up and go to Macedonia based on Paul's vision that he had received? Well, some may draw that conclusion. And yes, they did pursue a course to Macedonia that cannot be disputed. But notice the way in which Luke describes to us what they did. Acts 16 verse 10. Now after he had seen the vision, immediately we, (laughs) the collective we, we sought to go to Macedonia concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Notice Luke's description here with the terms we and us. Now, this is what I think Luke is telling us by means of those terms. Paul has this vision, and remember, he's still in the apostolic age of ongoing revelation at this time. Paul has a vision, but clearly by way of inference, there is a gathering of that small apostolic band where they considered together what to make of that particular vision. And the language is precise. We sought to do such and such concluding. Now the verb here for concluding is interesting. The word means to unite. It means to bring together, to put together, to compare, or to examine. And the point is that they didn't simply obey a vision... Because no vision can be a rule of behavior for the Christian. What they did was to place the vision before all of them. Compared what they knew of God to be true. And in accordance with what he had been doing in their own lives. They then concluded that the head for Macedonia was consistent with all that they knew about God. And with all of his purposes. And where did they learn about God and his purposes? They learned about God and his purposes from the revelation of Holy Scripture. That's where they learned it. In Holy Scripture. They applied their sanctified reasoning, yes. And considered the providences that God had placed before them. But providence can never be a rule of guidance for the Christian. You see, we are not infallible interpreters of providence. Sometimes we miss the meaning of providence. We are to bring all of our providences, dear people, to the touchstone of Holy Scripture. You see, going back to the example 
of Jonah. Upon arriving in Joppa and seeing, yes, there is a boat here. And it's about to embark for the city of Tarshish. The very place that I want to go. (laughs) But he had no business reading into that God's providence in that manner. Because God had commanded Jonah already to go elsewhere. (laughs) And in this case, the word of God contradicts providence. Now, there are a number of stories I could go into about this, but I'm going to bypass all of that simply to say that, dear people, God guides us by his word. And we need to be careful about trying to rule our lives by the providences that God brings into our lives. Providences are best interpreted by the 2020 vision of looking backward, not of looking forward. (laughs) Look at the providence backward after things have transpired somewhat. And I think it's important that we understand that because we live in a day and age that people have become obsessed with this whole matter of guidance. And often, it's a matter of personal, individual guidance. Where am I to live? What vocation am I to pursue in life? Who am I to marry? These are three major areas of concern, especially for young Christians. I think it's sad that we as Christians are called upon to make life decisions at such an early age. (laughs) Pardon me. I was called upon to make decisions, lifelong decisions, that I didn't have enough sense to make at the particular age when I made them. And yet we're called to do that, to make these important life decisions at such young ages. And I think that we often try to make this matter far too subjective in nature. I mean, I met my wife, and she knew right away. But it has been pointed out to us on a more serious note. It has been pointed out to us that in all of the godly literature that the Puritans produced, they never wrote any books on guidance per se. Why do you suppose they never did? I mean, they wrote about many, many subjects, but they never wrote on guidance. But what they did write were expositions of the glory of our Savior and the way of obedience to a gracious Savior. You see, in their day, this matter of guidance was not the obsession that it's become today. This is not to say that they never experienced anguish or distress uh, over such matters, but that was not the basic problem of the day with which they wrestled. Consider it this way, and I'm trying to bring this to a close. As parents, you're responsible for the upbringing, the nourishing, and the conduct of your children. The question of, are we going to walk in the way of righteousness? Whatever your hand finds to do that is right, then do it. With all of your might. If it's right, then do it. And do it with all of your might. 
You see, guidance is God's responsibility. Consider it this way. As parents, you want to guide your children, yes. Now, we are calling God's children, and we we're called that. And we have a loving, heavenly Father to whom we submit. And our loving, heavenly Father is intent on making His will clear for us to understand and to know. And it is for this reason, like the Puritans before us, we ought to be more focused upon our obedience than upon our guidance. That's so important. Be devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, the Psalms are so wonderful in this respect. In the 84th Psalm, we find these words. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Dear lady, are you looking for a godly husband? How can you do that? Obey God. Walk in the way of righteousness. God will bring that person into your life. Obey God. Don't worry about this guy. God will work it out. And we need to walk by faith and not by sight. Well, these are some, and this passage was rough to deal with. But those are some of my thoughts upon this passage. And I am not content with the way I've handled it. But I have done the best that I can to understand it. And uh, may God bless it to all of our hearts. Remember, if you take anything away from this tonight, take this away. Obedience is more important than guidance. Let's pray.